Somebody asked me, what's the magic of De Niro's acting? What's that magic that happens? And I just like I said, there's no magic. It's called hard work. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Each week, we're talking to women playing at the top of their game. So how are they doing it? Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Okay, everybody, you're about to hear from one of the most influential people in the entertainment industry. In 1988, she left a career in Hollywood and joined Robert De Niro to create Tribeca Productions, one of New York's first production companies, which is behind a number of huge box office successes like Meet the Parents. She then went on to create the Tribeca Film Festival, which just accomplished its most successful festival since they started as well as the Tribeca Film Institute. She's a leading producer of film and television, and now her latest project, Wizard of Lies, which focuses on the Bernie Madoff story, will be out on May 20th on HBO. Jane Rosenthal, welcome to No Limits. It's great to chat with you. Thank you. It's great to be here. And there's so much to get to here. I I love that you're doing Wizard of Lies because I spent so many years covering Bernie Madoff. I remember Mm -hmm. standing outside of his apartment on the Upper East Side, going to the Lipstick Building with Harry Markopoulos years later. Anyway, we're going to get to that in a minute, but I want to start with where you got your beginning. You grew up in Rhode Island. I grew up in Rhode Island. I moved to New York to go to NYU. Um, Ended up working um, as an intern for CBS Sports back in the day when it was a sports department, not even a division. Were you into sports? No, I wasn't into sports, but it was the place where I could get a job. And they asked me, somebody asked me, what do you know about sports? And my answer was, well, what do you want to know about sports? At which point I had to cram in terms of how you actually scored a football game because there I was on the NFL today and... Um, you know, I had to know who was who. But I respect that because your desire was to be in TV or to be in entertainment and tell stories, right? So you found a way in. Well, what we were doing at CBS at the time is I was doing um, a lot of the music pieces. This is as a production assistant. I was, I was 18 years old. I worked with this fabulous guy, uh, Mike Pearl. We would do these music pieces. So if the Jets or the Giants lost a game, you'd do something to send in the class. If there was a victory, you do something to Rocky. And we also told great stories. We told, you know, there were the personality pieces. So I always liked it as long as I could tell a personality piece. Then suddenly I became interested in the game. So you actually did get into sports as a result. I actually did get into sports as a result. Don't ask me anything about sports right now, but there you go. (laughs) You start out at CBS doing sports. I started CBS doing sports and then they ended up through, you know, long boring story, end up moving me to Los Angeles. I was 21 years old and they were it was during the heyday of the television movie and my big negotiation at the time was uh, you have to make your age like when you're playing basketball and you have to make your age. So uh, I moved. um, uh, They gave me 21, offered me, sorry, $21,000 and moved me, my books, my orange crate and a mattress, not even a box spring and mattress uh, to LA. And uh, I ended up doing television movies and miniseries. Um, It was in the time when whenever there was acute programming failure, they'd put on a television movie. So I had uh, incredible experience working on so many television movies and it was uh, covering every major minor social 
special issue disease of the week uh, type stories. And that was, uh, that was, you know, an extraordinary learning curve. You had an interest. Originally, you you were pursuing maybe even government or you wanted to be I wanted a politician? To, I did. I liked politics. I was um, a page in the Rhode Island House of Representatives when I was in high school. And I really wanted to, how do you make a difference in the world? But at the time, I didn't see politics as like a way a way forward. I also didn't know how I was going to have to pay my rent if I went into politics. So that was so you uh, chose another way to not pay so your rent. Which I, is- <laughs> no, I chose another way. I, early I, on, at least. Early on, I thought, okay, I can tell great stories, and you know, the great stories get you interested into in various issues. And in some ways, tell stories better than. Uh, a politician can, and you, sit and maybe and, even have a bigger impact, and have than a bigger impact to sit and and listen and look at both sides of look at both sides of an issue. Okay, so you're in LA. You're 21, 22 years old. How are you navigating that terrain in the first place? Um, you know, I, I didn't know anything but. And I also remember very clearly because I was working at CBS, you had you were, had only three networks and you had the glimmer of Fox, okay? So, and it wasn't really that, that long ago. And I always thought that people were not friends with me. They were friends with the chair and the desk. And so I was very respectful of the office that I was in. And uh, I think it kept me out of trouble in a lot of ways because I felt I had to be probably a bit more mature or certainly act mature. I felt I had to wear suits, you know. So you wore suits. I wore suits, of course, because you, you know, thank God for Donna Karen in those early years, you know. Um, but, you know, I felt I had to look appropriate. You're there. You're getting to see a lot of things for the first time in your life. What are you making of all of this? What are you making of Hollywood in general? Well, there were very, there was very clearly two divisions in Hollywood. There was the television side and there was a the film side. And people didn't even go to the same restaurants. So you weren't circulating. In, and there was also the music business. And people didn't really, at least on my lowly level that I was on, <laughs> it, it, people didn't, you know, you didn't mix. The town didn't mix. And it wasn't until years later when, you know, George Clooney leaves ER and does a movie, or there were, uh, you know, um, Denzel Washington off of a series. And so when that started to cross, that slowly started to cross. And now you see something like Bob De Niro doing the Madoff movie, because that's uh, a great way to uh, tell that specific story and to reach uh, to reach an audience versus doing it as an independent film. And then you're also working with him on a Netflix uh, yes, uh, yes, uh, yes. Would you call? Do you call it a show when it's on Netflix? I call it a movie. A movie. I, I okay. call it a movie. A movie. It, it, it's, a, it's a movie. Uh, it's with uh, Martin Scorsese, and we'll uh, start to shoot. Uh, I hope at the end of August. So that's been a project we've been working on for actually almost ten years. This is called The Irishman. This is The Irishman that Steve Zalian wrote based on a book called I Hear You Paint Houses by Charles Brandt. Okay, so that's what's happening now. 
Back then, people weren't moving around. How are you networking and finding your way in this world? And how much of that do you think still applies to someone who's just starting out today? Well, it's so much, it's different today because, uh, today we can sit here and we can be, we can be on LinkedIn, we can be on Facebook, we can text, we hardly use, we don't use phones, uh, as, you know, people don't sit and make calls. So it was very important those early days to, um, go to networking parties to, uh, call people and ask them for lunch. I mean, I think those things still apply, but you have so many other ways to connect to people now and to, and, and to reach people and uh, also to discover new people. Um, if I was interested in a new writer, I was, you know, having to go to various theater festivals or, you know, look at every show that's uh, off-Broadway or in repertory theater. And a lot of that now um, talent comes to you via your whatever device you're on. You really established yourself. You went from being that PA to being an established force. Is that what I am? I think so. I don't know. I, I think, think it's so. life in the breakdown lane, really. You think everything's so established. It's, you know, you... It's. Um, you it know, doesn't it's, feel it, that way? It it's, you know, it's a lot of work. Somebody asked me last night about what's the magic of De Niro's acting. What's that magic that happens? And I just like I said, there's no magic. It's called hard work. I mean, he works so hard to, um, to you know, to perform, to, you know, just down to every little nuance. And there is... Um, you know, it's it's all hard work. I mean, hasn't it? Uh, nothing just comes to you. Even the show, starting this show for you, yes. didn't just no. And I think something that I've just personally seen in my career, and you're describing it here too. You you think that like somehow you're going to get to the other end of the rainbow and see the pot of gold, but then there's another mountain to climb and another like more difficult thing you have to figure out. But if you're curious, you always want to keep going. Obviously, so if you're if you're curious, if you're excited about where um, your career, no matter what that is, is where that's taking you, right? Then you're going to keep going. Absolutely, I, I mean, and that's. Uh, at least for me, I think one of the reasons um, I like producing is because I'm probably really ADD and I never had to pick a major. And so I can keep, you know, whatever the subject matter is, I can now go into it and learn a lot about it and become obsessed with whatever that subject matter is. And then, you know, you make the movie or television show or a short film and you're on to the next. Yeah, you can go so deep and then turn the page. Mm-hmm. I'm so curious about the decision that you made to leave that in some respects to start Tribeca and to move back to New York. You probably had a really cushy lifestyle at that point. I mean, look, it was hard work, but there were things that came along with that. Yeah, I had a brand new Porsche. That ha- I was working at Disney with uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner. I had a brand new Porsche, uh, and the only thing that went wrong with it is that the headlights burned out because I was going to work in the dark and I was coming home in the dark. And <laughs> I had this lovely little house up in the Hollywood Hills that I never had time to furnish. So it was um, when I met Bob, um, he was thinking of starting something. We spent a lot of time talking about it and um, you know what we could what we could build and met on and off over a year. He was talking to a lot of other people and uh, then um, 
he said, okay, let's let's do it. And I thought, you know what? Why don't you go and build it, get this building you're talking about? You go and do this. And, you know, in a year, I'll come. And I just remember he yelled at me and said, what do you want to do, be a studio executive for the rest of your life? And the way he said it, it was like, ooh. I don't. I don't know if I want to do that. But at the at the end of the day, I I wrote a list which were pros, cons, and intangibles. And the pros were about trusting my own instinct. And if I couldn't trust my own instinct, then I didn't belong in this business. And if and the the cons actually were about not trusting my own instincts. And the intangibles actually were going to be intangibles my whole life. And so it was really about saying, okay, no matter what everyone else said, I was going to now move to New York, which, you know, because you you have to remember, faxes had just really come into play, <laughs> okay? And phone, you could carry a phone, but it was, uh, it was really heavy. Was Bigger than the Wall Street phone. Yeah. So it was really about trusting my own instincts, and the worst that was going to happen to me is I was going to um, move back to L.A. and be a studio executive. So, doesn't sound so bad when you put it that way. Well, it was. It it felt like it was a gamble because it was. There were so many people who said, "Don't do it." What do you? You know, you're giving up all of this I'm for just, for up, the unknown. I'm giving up. You know, life in the corporate. Um, you know, studio life. Michael Eisner and Katzenberg, these are not small fish that you're working with. uh, And then I was at Warner's for a bit and uh, working with Bob Daly. And, you know, it was ultimately was about I wanted to really get my hands dirty. I wanted to work on what I was passionate about because if you're going to be a producer, no matter if you're doing a podcast, no matter what you're doing, you have to have passion. You have to believe in it. I mean, we're talking, look, the Madoff movie took us a long time to get made. We're talking about doing Irishman. It's almost taken 10 years. And so a lot of times it's like Sisyphus pushing a rock up the hill to get it done. And, you know, you can get sidetracked by a lot of things. And, you know, particularly for women, you get sidetracked. You're having a baby over here. You're doing different things. Um, But I just felt like I wanted to make the kind of projects I wanted to make. And some would be successful and some would be complete bombs. But, but you would know. You would know. You would know what it would mean to mm-hmm. really take 100% your vision and go after your vision as opposed to fulfilling someone else's idea. Exactly. Although producing isn't necessarily about your singular vision sure. because you start to <laughs> as soon as you bring it, as soon as you bring it and you know, the a, di- a director whose vision you share, and you start, it's it's literally starting to put together a symphony, and you're bringing all these people in, and you want to keep it on track, and you have your, you have the studio or financiers, and you have a lot of people that you're, you know, you're trying to please. And, How do you manage that? Um, I, I like to multitask, what can I say? It's, um, I think that's the fun part, actually, is managing it all. Really? Mm-hmm. There are some producers I work with who are great managers, but I think it's a it's a, a skill set that takes time to develop. It takes time to develop. It's also um, you know child psychology, so it's all <laughs> <laughs> okay. Speaking of psychology, getting into Bernard Madoff's mind. So Diana Henriquez, uh, another journalist, wrote the book that Wizard of Lies is based on. How did you? get into his mind and what did you learn in the process of making this 
Uh, when we had first optioned the book, we were probably going to do. We were we were fascinated with the story. We talked about doing the story either as a fictional story at one point before Diana's book came out, and then we optioned uh, Diana's book. And as the years went past, really, it wasn't until uh, Barry Levinson really came on the project and we started to look at restructuring it. it it's about the family and the disintegration of a family. And I think had we done it in the, you know, a few years earlier, it would have been more about the actual Ponzi scheme. And mm-hmm. Madoff, hurt, uh, Madoff hurt a lot of people, but what what strikes me the most is what it's like to grow up with a man who is a sociopath, who is the man who teaches, the father that teaches the sons right from wrong and good from bad. And at one point, Mark, who's the son who had uh, committed suicide, says, how do I know what's right from wrong anymore? How do I know how to value anything? How do I, what do I say to my kids? So you see the destruction of that whole family and the disintegration of the family. And uh, it's a pretty powerful drama. It's interesting how you say that it might have been more about a Ponzi scheme if it was done in the early aftermath. But when you have both of the sons now have passed away, one from cancer mm-hmm. and the other from suicide. How do you look at Ruth? Who is Ruth now? Who am I to say who Ruth is now? I don't know how um, she puts one foot in front of the other. Um, but that said, um, you know, she met Bernie. They were teenagers, and she believed him. And, you know, on one hand, you know, love is blind, and you want to believe. Um, and, you know, I think he really was emotionally abusive, and you you see that in the movie. Um Look, it's a it's a it's an interpretation. A movie is a, a docudrama is an interpretation, so it's not a documentary. You don't really know what went on, um, except from you know everybody's reports. Uh, Michelle uh, Pfeiffer did go meet with Ruth, but I, I never actually have had a conversation with mm. her about what their time together was. What kind of responsibility do you feel, especially in the docudrama space? as as a filmmaker you certainly want the facts as we know them to be out there you want to um, make you make your audience aware of both sides of the story um, and uh, you know you look we also want to be responsible too uh, Madoff had a lot of victims and by telling this story you hope that other people won't, you know, will have their eyes wide open in the future about, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, these kinds of things. I mean, it's, um, so again, um, you have to be, you're trying to be responsible, uh, but you're also trying, you're also doing a piece of entertainment too, a good drama. That people will ultimately watch and enjoy. I'm sure you talk to people who want to get into this business a lot. What do you think is the biggest error that people make when they come and talk to you and pitch you on their ideas? Uh, that they don't have an idea. They I come mean, in without an idea? They come in and they don't have an idea or they'll say, well, I really want to produce or I want to do that. It's like, well, what's the idea? What are you passionate right. about? And something, if you want to do it, then what is it that you have that you've 
you had inside you that you want to do. Right. It's not just that I'm this great candidate. And, Show me and, something. And by the way, today you have zero excuses because you can be on you can be online and you have access to almost everything. You have access to every trade, every blog, the inside look at every of every actor, writer, director. So there aren't excuses anymore to say I don't know how to do this. You you can be self-taught very easily. I look at it as an opportunity also because there are so many platforms now. Mm-hmm. I mean, in your business, you can sell your ideas now to 25 places that you couldn't sell to 10 years ago because they didn't exist. Well, that's what's so exciting because all of a sudden if you want to do a short film, uh, you know, I did a short film uh, last year uh, with the artist JR on uh, Ellis Island and Bob uh, played a, I mean, we shot it in a day, uh, which was very exciting. So there, we could do a short film because you have an idea for something. You can do something on Netflix, on Hulu. There's more places to sell. There's more opportunities as a producer to go out and tell your stories in so many different ways. What do you think is the biggest misconception about all of it? Uh, that, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's all uh, glamorous and it's a breeze and What's the least glamorous thing you did specifically recently in in Wizard of Lies, for example? I don't think there's anything glamorous about what I, I don't think there's any, look, you get uh, you know, you're, you get up early. You get up really you get up really early and you go to some you know, strange location parking lot out in the middle of nowhere. Um but um Actually, we had some good locations on. Uh, we had some good locations on Madoff movie. But sometimes I, you don't. Sometimes you don't, and um, you know, glamorous. Uh, you know, it's standing outside in the freezing cold. Um, you know, being there for your director, being supportive, and that's that's key. I mean, it's uh, you. You want to support uh, your creatives around you and make sure that they get the best. Um, they get the best that they that that they want for the project and that you want for a project. There's so much more focus today uh, than when you got started on female filmmakers and more women in the industry um, and obviously compensation of women in the industry as well. When you were starting out, you were, I mean, you were almost a novelty. You were one of such a small number of women. What was your experience? Did you have bad experiences like that? I didn't know that I was different. I mean, I I grew up with a mother who said I could be and do anything I wanted to. And so I really believed that. And the fact that there weren't other women in sports, um, you know, you had Phyllis Georgia, this uh, woman, Janice Delson, who I believe is probably still at, uh, works at uh, Fox Sports. Um, you had uh, Joan Richmond, who was a sports uh, a producer who came out of um, live events at CBS. Uh, I mean, there were a handful of there were a handful of people, but um, I just thought you could do it. Why not? I didn't think there was you know any big difference, uh, except when I would show up and for a weekend to go cover. Um, to go with like the crew and I would be carrying like all this luggage and they would have check out you know carry on luggage and um, <laughs> no it was um there were times where it was there were times it was hard but I I didn't think about it mm-hmm. I just went and did it mm-hmm. you seem like a head down work hard kind of person 
Uh, yes. How do you make sure as that? No, I mean, I, I'm saying right, that yeah. in a very right. positive mm-hmm. way. I hope you know yeah. that. I, I, I respect hard work, but it doesn't always get recognized. So how do you put your hand up and make sure that you get recognized for the things that you're doing? Um, I I hope that my work speaks for itself mm-hmm. and that eventually it will either be recognized for um, what is good about it or not and um, that you know I don't need to keep putting my hand up to be recognized look I have two teenage girls and the most important people in the world to be recognized and to um, make sure that they have two feet on the ground and they have uh, they have uh, that they become the women I would like to be um, is the most important thing so that's really where I want to be recognized the rest of this stuff is I I enjoy what I do. I have a great time. What's been the toughest lesson for you to learn along the way? Um, as much as I say trust your own instinct, it's when it's to really trust your own instinct. As soon as I try to second guess it, uh, something always goes wrong. Worst advice? Uh, don't move to New York. <laughs> <laughs> Which you received Which from I a lot of people. Which I received from a lot of people, and I thought, okay, I'm just going to go do this. I put my car in storage. I rented my house, and I like I moved to New York. And the rest kind of worked out. The rest the rest <laughs> worked out so far. Jade, thank you so much for joining me. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. Remember, if you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe, rate us, and tell your friends. And special thanks to the team here at ABC that helps make this happen. Taylor Dunn, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, Michelle Boncardo, Steve Jones, Annie Osakwe, and Elizabeth Hecht. And join me next Tuesday for an all-new episode of No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis. Until then, take care, be well. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.